Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 29. Today we speak with Dr. Klaus Iflander. Klaus started his career doing internships in a few different places, including Yahoo and the Port of Hamburg. The interesting thing there is that he did some very technical internships and some very non-technical internships. So he had good experience there. He then went to do a PhD in quantitative marketing. Really, really interesting discussion. And he tells us a lot about that. He then did some consulting, worked as a data scientist for years. And now he's the chief analytics officer at Yas Life, which is a startup in Germany. In this episode, Klaus tells us about the importance of defining good KPIs for businesses and what that looks like. He tells us how to help people and organizations that don't know what they want. He explains why large companies require so much custom work. We talk about applying soft skills in data science and the value that that brings. He tells us stories about using his soft skills for data acquisition. I think something really important. We talk about pricing models in the steel business where he spent some time. And then we obviously cover data science in fitness startups, which is what he's doing now. It's a really great episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe, and today I'm talking with Klaus. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, thanks. How are you, Felipe? Ah, so good. Thanks so much for making the time. I've been looking forward to having a good discussion with you for some time, and um, I'm excited to get to hear about your story and the things that you've learned in your career. Absolutely, I'm excited. Thank you. So at the beginning, I always like to ask about how people got started into the field. How was that time for you? How did you get into the data space? Well, I always had an interest in technology. That's why I studied business informatics. So to be honest, I wasn't brave enough to pick computer science in the beginning. So I was leaning more to the business side. And um, in retrospect, I think that's a really good mixture of uh, topics to learn about. So that is my background from the university. Also, what I noticed later on is that uh, these studies that I was rolled in didn't really teach statistics at all. So we had a lot of technical topics. I learned programming. I learned a lot of formal computer science stuff. Also business basics, like all the fundamentals of business administration, but uh, no statistics really, like no in-depth education on that. So that's why I'm even until today, I'm leaning more towards the technical side of the whole data science area. And only later on when I did my PhD in uh, like quantitative marketing, that's when I really started to learn about in-depth all the statistics fundamentals on the social sciences. And that really helped me to get this mix together because you know what they say like the data scientist would be the perfect uh, combination of computer science and statistics and business knowledge. So now I got all three down. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And was that a conscious choice to start heading down that path of building all three pillars? Not really. I just um, noticed this uh, way into my PhD thesis. This is actually a really good combination and that the field is really taking off because this is a couple of years ago now. That's when I realized this is actually a very exciting combination as well. I didn't know that uh, it must have been around the time when the when the term data science was really coined and started to take off. So uh, that's how I noticed that this is actually something that it unconsciously. Yeah. That's great. And did you work before you did your PhD? Yes, I did. After university, I worked as a business consultant for about two years. And there also I was on the interface between business 
and technology. So I was building mostly reporting and controlling systems, maintaining those. And that always requires a lot of conceptual work, like KPI definitions typically, and uh, setting up usable systems. Also sometimes very, very process heavy projects, all the stuff that you do in like a technical consulting function. Before that, I was always like, even when I was in university, I was always trying to get practical experience and apply what I know, because I always thought that's where you learn the most and that's where also I had most fun and that's how I also like even before I started really working full-time I got some experience as an intern at Yahoo for example I was more on the business side not so much technical and uh, I had an, another project at IBM where I was an intern where also I got some first experience in applying uh, forecasting models and then I had a very technical project at uh, the port of Hamburg I was uh, tasked with installing Installing a digital security system that warns the uh, workers in the port of uh, dangerous areas that occur on ships that are frequently changing. So all exciting stuff, like everything from business to very technical stuff to very statistic stuff. So I always enjoyed and uh, love it all. I find that really interesting that you were able to go from sort of working on the business side at Yahoo to doing forecasting models at IBM and then and then digital security in the port. It's great to have the variety that I guess uh, consulting gives you, which uh, I think is also really good early in the career. What did you do at the at the port? That sounds really interesting. I was an intern for a couple of months. I worked for the CTO there and also for the port facility security officer. <laughs> which is a, a very important job there because this is a, a field of work that is very, workers are very prone to injuries because it's a very uh, dangerous working environment. And so that's why they had this idea come up with basically hanging up huge screens all over the place or like the most frequented places, the cafeteria and uh, some other places. They, they hung up these big screens and they wanted them to display the most dangerous spots to watch out, like where you have to watch your head or where you easily stumble on the ships that are currently in the port. So only the most relevant information. So that was the wow. challenge. I was actually hired as a programmer. <laughs> and then I did some research, like 10 and I told them, yes, we could program something like this, but it's actually not necessary. There's companies selling those systems, even including mounting of the displays and setting everything up. So that's what we did. And so my task became from programming intern. I was then like um, screening vendors of these systems and <laughs> talking to them, comparing their offers, set everything up, and I was very happy of course. I love how you made that transition from programmer to project manager. Programming, <laughs> right? But I really like that approach. I'm a huge fan of use whatever is out there that can do the job and then fill out the rest with your own programming if you need to. How did the client react to you wanting to take them down that path? They were a little bit surprised, of course, because they, they didn't anticipate that. But also they were happy that they had someone who could support them in the technical details and guide them through the process. And I did my best. Excellent. And was it hard to convince them? Not really, because it immediately made a lot of sense to them that we don't need to program everything ourselves, even though that's what they usually do with these um, very large-scale web applications that they usually use. Yeah, but they thought, like, why not? We can use whatever's there if it's more reliable. And even um, a big point for them was the maintenance afterwards, because I was only an intern for a couple of months. And then after they purchased the system, they had this vendor that could support them even afterwards. So that's a major point, yeah. That's great. That's excellent. And I want to ask you more about your time in consulting early on. What was something that you encountered when you were working as a consultant, something you encountered that maybe you didn't expect? Did something change your, didn't meet your expectations or was it different to what you thought it could be? Does anything come to mind? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I pretty much knew what um, what it was up for because I, I did some consultant work even when I still was a student, but um, it's very different if you do it like for a living because then you're not so free to choose the project. And uh, I know this is a little bit different in every consultancy, but uh, as I work for Deloitte and uh, what they do is they, like whenever you're a free consultant, they just staff you on the project where they see and make the best impact. So of course you have a say in that as well. And you can also choose the 
the general business area or business line that you want to work into. But um, sometimes we have also projects that are not so exciting. It's just a part of the job. And of course, it's a business that needs to make money and not uh, it's not just there for you, for every consultant to learn the most. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you need the job done and um, it's a big part of this profession. Yeah, so sometimes you just have to get on with it, even if it's not such an exciting project. Write down a lot of processes are not, not so special and not so exciting. That's fine. So, but after a while, if you're unlucky several times in a row that, and also all, all the traveling. So, um, I thought that there's probably some field where I can learn more or grow more as a person. That's when I started looking for positions as a PhD candidate. And I always wanted to do this. So this was like a good time for me to get out of consulting and go into the PhD <laughs> business. That's great. That's fair enough. And I do want to ask you about your PhD as well. But before we do that, I want to ask you about, you said in your time in consulting, you're working on defining KPIs for businesses. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you um, more about that. How did you go about doing that? And what was the process like? So the thing is, or a big learning uh, that I had afterwards is that in consulting, you usually work for very large corporations, right? And so characteristic of these companies is that they are very differentiated in everything that they do. Like this is very different from startups, for example, where you have to do whatever the job takes, like, and everybody's responsible for multiple areas. And that's fine for the time being. But when the company grows, you have people responsible for seemingly very little areas of the business. So for every problem that you encounter and every question that you have there, it's going to be someone there. <laughs> and the same goes for KPIs. So even if you're on a business intelligence project where a couple of uh, metrics need to be defined or implemented or whatever, there's always going to be someone who knows exactly uh, what they want to know and how this KPI should be defined. And then the task often becomes harmonize these different views of a person from marketing might be interested in looking at this in exactly this way and a person from controlling might be looking at it differently and they both call it retention rate for example <laughs> and then you have to first write down what exactly they mean and then moderate these differences and then settle on something or define both of them and call them differently and all these things so that's a big part of the job and then also you have to implement them and uh, check whether everything's right test everything make sure that it's actually what you intended to calculate so yeah that's a lot of what i did that's right that's what i wanted to get to the fact that you had to navigate the organization the politics the definitions of data in order to do the job right Sometimes people think they know what they want, and then when you ask very specific questions, it becomes clear that it's actually not that clear in or throughout the company, or you need to lay some other groundwork, or they don't have a real reporting system, everything's done in Excel, and then you need to decide which tools to use, and then sometimes it even becomes an entirely different project, because you first have to create some infrastructure, and then you can go on and define and analyze. So yeah, that all happens. <laughs> That's right. And out of all that entire process, what did you find as the most challenging part? I think it's always challenging when you have to, when you're tasked with something and then, yeah, throughout the project, you realize that it's not going to be that easy because there's so many different reasons why you can't use the tools, for example, that you were planning to use or the knowledge is not really present in the company and you first need to create some trainings on all these things or you first need to come up with a concept of how to do everything and then you can start with the project that was actually requested by the client. So that can be challenging sometimes because then you always have to explain this or sometimes sell more project volume and it costs a lot of money and then there's this disappointment and <laughs> so you have to also navigate those things, not only the, the technical challenges or the data challenges, yeah. That's right. And how did you, do you have any examples of how you manage the customer's expectations during those times where they thought that it was going to be a straightforward project and it wasn't or elements like that? Yeah, one, this uh, project I did for IBM when I was an intern is a good example for that. A very capable team of my fellow students and we were tasked with developing a forecasting model for IBM sales because we all specialized in this field during our studies and there was this contact to uh, one manager of IBM who headed uh, a department of the internal consulting division. He came up with this idea because he also had some examples to prove it that this is possible. So he said, look, for every country that we're active in, we have these macroeconomic indicators like um, 
I don't know, capital expenditure and all these economic data, right, that you can get from World Health Institute or the United Nations and all these data sources that you get. And then also we have some internal data, like, for example, our server sales. And so the task was to create a very reliable forecasting model for that. And uh, he had like a definition of how precise it should be so that it's usable for a certain uh, planning function that they always do. We immediately started working. We collected all this data. We uh, tested several forecasting models to do this. Very early on, we couldn't really get it to work because we, we thought this would be very straightforward, like in our university examples, where everything works out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> in real life, this isn't the case. And so, yes, his examples are conforming to his expectations. But as soon as you added more data to the model, it became less and less clear whether this was actually possible. And then also, we discovered that uh, within IBM, there have been several projects in the past who tried very similar things and they more or less uh, didn't reach a clear conclusion or they all said this is somewhat working but it's not really working and so we made this shift we pivoted in a sense because we said we can uh, try and do the same thing and maybe reach inconclusive results like the other projects but uh, we have this advantage that we're really just a team of external consultants here and uh, we can pretty much do whatever we want because we're going to be gone <laughs> in a couple of months. So why not use this time and use this advantage to create the most value with this knowledge that we have? Because we know several people have tried this and there are several reasons why this might not actually be feasible. And so we made this commitment to creating the most value and t doing a very comprehensive final report on why this is actually not such a good idea to model this in this way, why the other projects have uh, not not really reached their goal and did not live up to their expectations. And everybody was very happy with it because this was really honest. It created a perfect uh, piece of knowledge that can be used in the future. And it kept uh, other projects from doing the same mistakes. Of course, but that's a really brave thing to do. To take that step to say, you know what, we're, we're going to say what it is and essentially say the I mean, truth and explain it. Of course, we talked to the project manager, whether he was on board with it. And of course, we backed everything up with real data. We explained everything very thoroughly. But yes, in the end, we made that shift. <laughs> we made this bold move. Yeah. And why did you decide to do that, to make that shift? Because if you're really honest about this, uh, about the consulting business, it's not about doing exactly what the client wants, but it's more about seeing the bigger picture, creating the most value for the client, like also consulting him about what he maybe actually wants, <laughs> but he might not have requested very specifically. Could not agree more. So, so true. So how in that case, or you can use another example if you want, but how did you measure value? How did you know how to move the project closer to delivering value out of everything that you could have done? Yes, that's a very good question. Yeah, you're right. This example is not maybe the best one because in that case, we could only ask everyone, like, do you agree? Like, would this be a valuable move for you? Or would you rather have us stick to a project that we know will be compromised in one way or the other? But I think that that's really good because at times, and for example, in my case, I spent 12 years as a consultant and I know that sometimes consultants like get a bad name because you can have a short engagement like the one that you described and you can see that customer really can't get what they're asking for. Sometimes people feel forced or feel like they should provide the client something similar to what they ask for and they try very hard to get as close as possible. But what I really like about that example is that you chose to take a stand and say, well, this is actually what's happening here. Let's do some investigation and we can explain the reasons. So in that case, and going back to the value question, maybe we go to a different example, but in that case, the value was in uncovering the truth instead of letting the client perpetuate something that couldn't really happen. And part of that is what you said so well before is getting to understand what the client needs, not necessarily that that can be different to what the client is asking for. 
you're right. Also, in, in terms of measuring, like when you're a very disciplined consultant, you always figure out a way to measure this and to quantify this impact. Maybe it's just my experience, but um, I always feel this is very difficult in business projects. Like sometimes, yes, you have the opportunity, you can quantify the sales or the retention of users or the cost savings. Yes, sometimes that's absolutely possible. But um, my experience, most of the time you, you have to rely on not really a gut feeling, but um, what the client says about what you're proposing. So that's yes. usually a good indicator. Yes. So what you're saying is that there is both hard metrics and soft metrics into how to determine value. Is, is that right? Yeah. Good way to put it, yeah. That's good. And how do you keep your finger on the pulse or try to measure the, the soft metric or metrics? Uh, it's always a good relationship with the client. Like whatever it is, it's, uh, like in, in consulting, it's your uh, consulting client that you consult. But also in other organizations, there's always an internal stakeholder. There's always someone who requested something from you. And um, most of the time, that's the stakeholder or someone else. So they always can think of who sees value in that and that request that you're trying to deliver or that you're tasked with. So ask that person. Yeah. That's, that's really good. And did you have cases where different stakeholders might be asking for things that were opposing one another or say that maybe they defined the same metric in very different ways or they wanted different things from the from the same project? Did you ever have those sort of not conflicts, but those differences in opinions that you had to handle? Yeah, it's not really. I didn't experience it as a direct contradiction and I never understood it as uh, opposing intentions. I really always try to understand the reasoning behind it. And if you do that, like if you ask the person why he thinks this should be defined in that way or why this should be done in such a way, then they always have good reasons for it. And sometimes, yes, they, they clash with other, <laughs> other stakeholders in the project, but then that's also your job to the people especially in data science like it's not a very technical job where you just uh, find a way to program something and it's more about understanding what is really requested here and why these differences occur and then either find find a good way forward for all the parties or do both or do whatever but um yeah see the bigger picture what's really the best way to go forward yeah yes that's right i can't help but ask, because I think that that's such an important point that you're raising to be able to see, almost to read between the lines, right, of what the client is saying that they want versus what they actually need or what would be the best for the company you're consulting for. How do you find that what is actually valuable or what should actually be done? How do you find that? I would say be a good listener, be an active listener, let the client speak understand his or her story and ask a lot of questions and at some point like i can't really put my finger on it but uh, at some point pieces start to uh, fit together in your head and then you get a clearer picture over time and then you would start asking really precise questions to confirm this and then at some point you have a good way forward that's great because through that process you uncover the pattern right Yes. Um, yeah. Awesome. Also, good techniques for this. Like, I think it really pays off reading uh, some material on that because people usually think that, um, especially data science, is a lot of technical stuff, and you have to know all the statistics and type uh, programming languages and all these things. But uh, it also pays off to look into social science and how to ask good questions and how to be a good listener and read some material on that. I agree completely. <laughs> I agree completely. If there was one resource that you would recommend or, or one resource that comes to mind, maybe a, a book or an article or a video or anything like that, do you have one thing that you could recommend that could help with that social side? Yeah, on that, I think a, a big classic that I read is uh, Dale Carnegie, How to Make Friends and Influence People. Great. You know it? Yeah, really. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. So after consulting, after you were Deloitte, you went in to do your PhD, right? Yes. And you said quantitative marketing. How and why did you pick that? Because I think that's at the very core of what I always try to do, like harnessing technology to really make an impact in businesses. And I think marketing is a very, very important part of 
business administration and uh, this really expanded my uh, horizon on that because um, initially I as I'm sure many other people think of marketing as just pushing stuff out to people like more advertising and marketing is something much more than that so yes advertising is a part of it but it's really aligning your product with the market or people that you think are your customers in the future so that is really a better perspective to look at marketing and this institute that i worked at really focused on this quantitative aspects of that like for example how can i get an innovative product from interesting some very lead users some like cutting edge people who always want to have the latest technology or the latest innovation in some space how can i get innovation from that to a larger audience, to like a bigger part of the market, to like the early majority and then the late majority and all these things and what characterizes those people. And how can I model that also in terms of statistical models? So I thought that was very exciting. And that's an area where statistics plays a big role. So that's why I chose that. And I always was keen on, on um like really thinking through a, a large, very difficult problem on my own for several years, like to have that time <laughs> and that freedom that always excited me. So yeah, I always wanted to do that. And uh, yeah, I thought it's a very good field to be in. That's perfect. And then by that definition of marketing that you said, which I really like, it's quite a broad field, obviously, in the sense that you can be focusing on the diffusion of the product or understanding the market better to see what they want or being able to bring those needs from the market back into product innovation. What part of the, of the field did you focus on with your PhD? I focused on situations where your purchase decision is influenced by your social surroundings. So uh, this sounds very abstract, uh, but I, I did two studies on that. And the first one was I tried to pick a situation where people uh, have the opportunity to decide to purchase an innovation or to adopt it. That's what the terminology calls it, to adopt an innovation. And they are really influenced by their social peers during that decision period. And so I picked, as an example, to study this phenomenon, I picked a, a golf club because they, like, it's very easy to pinpoint an innovation there. So the, of course, the clubs, what, what you hit the ball with, they, they don't really change over time. They have new collections every year. They have different colors, maybe some very slight changes in material and design, but that's it. Like there's no, like you still swing the club in the same way and you hit the ball <laughs> you try to get it as far as possible. And also the, the other stuff too, of course, they have new clothes every year and all that stuff. But um, one thing I noticed was that more and more people start to have these electrically driven trolleys where you put your bag on, you push it across the core, and uh, the new models now have an electric motor with it to ease the pushing. It's not that I think it's such a breakthrough innovation. It's more like it's very easy uh, to spot this in the field. So that's what I chose as an innovation. And also I chose the setting because I was able to quantify the social network in that golf club in the society players there because i uh, convinced the uh, club administration to uh, give me the booking data of an entire year so i knew uh, which members played with which other members around over an entire year in this golf uh, course so i constructed the entire social network from that and was able to visualize that but that doesn't really tell you a lot and that's why at the same time i went there and i constructed a survey a very long questionnaire it's very common practice in research i really tried to convince uh, as many people as possible to answer this questionnaire so i invited them for coffee and for <laughs> for <laughs> cake sometimes and it was really there at the clubhouse all day for several weeks and i also asked them to please 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 provide their member number if possible at all <laughs> and that it's not an anonymous questionnaire so i could match their answers with the notes in my social network and then also i was able to of course calculate a certain social network metrics from the network and correlate those with the answers in the questionnaire. And that's how I was able to draw some interesting conclusions. Like, for example, um, very highly connected people are more, not necessarily by this um, innovation, but are more likely to. And uh, 
was das ein, ein like, some of the details slip my mind, but this was like uh, one of the major findings that you have to be, not necessarily have a lot of direct contacts, but we be in a very strategically advantageous position in the network, which is measured with eigenvector centrality. That was a very a core metric that I used. And uh, I was told that also Google uses it in their search result ranking. So eigenvector centrality really tells you how, in a sense, a strategically advantaged position uh, someone or something has in a network. And so that also, in my case, told a lot about whether someone uh, was more likely to adopt this innovation. That's fantastic. One, so that was one study I did. And, oh, and so um, and before you go to the next one, can you explain a little bit more about the eigenvector centrality? I cannot uh, tell you. Only if you remember. It's not that smart. On the top of my head. But it tells you how, or basically the way you interpret it is, I think it weights, in a sense, the connections that you have and also indirect connections that you have. Like the further away they are, the less they are weighted or something similar to that. It's a very complex mathematical algorithm to calculate it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, you can look it up. But that's like basically the way you interpret it. When I someone has a very eigenvector centrality, and that means they are not necessarily the ones with the most contacts directly, or uh, speaking of uh, real-world problems, they're not necessarily the person who knows the most persons, but yeah. they are the ones who are in a very central strategic position if you look at the entire network but in real life you very rarely have the chance to get a clear picture of an entire population like that so this can only be done in a research setting like that well that's that's really interesting so it's a measure eigenvector centrality is a measure of influence that each individual has on the network is that fair to say yeah that's that's the way to put it yeah that's really interesting. And do you think that if you're able to calculate it in the network for your research, do you think that can be extrapolated to try and, I guess, predict the influence of people in a larger network when you would have sparse data? I don't think that would work because you need uh, to have a very complete view of the network. So it actually makes sense in applications where you really can access this kind of information. So like online social network platforms like Facebook or the messenger networks, like basically everything where you can friend or follow anyone, any other user. That's where the platform operator really has that information. Also for, for Facebook, there are some tools who, uh, who allow you to view your own network and at least a couple of steps further the, um, your surroundings. You just have to give them access to your Facebook account and then they visualize all of that for you. So in theory, you could use that data to calculate your eigenvector centrality, at least to some extent, like not for the entire uh, Facebook network, but, <laughs> but at least some part of it, yeah. Exactly, to see who's got more influence. That's good. And what was the other main finding that you were mentioning from the PhD? Yes, so the other study, I was focusing on online travel booking situations because that's so commonplace nowadays that everything, all the uh, travels are booked online, especially for students. And also because I had a lot of students at my disposal to do uh, research with. So I geared the situation very much to setting that would be relevant for a student in that situation. So since students book a lot of vacation, like during summer break, for example, they usually book hostels. So I use that and I research what's the most uh, popular travel destination in Europe. That's London. And so I use this as an example and ask them a lot of questions about, or actually I didn't construct it so much as a survey. I was making it more realistic. So I constructed a digital booking situation. So I wrote some text about it, general, the hostel and uh, even uh, displayed some pictures on it. I just made sure it was a very relevant and realistic setting to them. And then I gave them four different versions of the same review, right? And then I measured the impact from that on the different groups because I wanted to come up with something that only I as a researcher could do because there's, you know, you have all these uh, reviews on Amazon and so on. And of course, you could go and gather all these reviews and analyze them and do a word uh, metrics on them, language analysis. And that's all been done and there's good findings from that. But I wanted to do something that Amazon, for example, couldn't do because they are a company and they would, of course, apply uh, algorithms to all their reviews that they already have in their site. And so I did something uh, different. 
I very carefully constructed these reviews to hold basically the same information in the same order, same lengths, the same everything, except two things. So I varied two dimensions. One was written very emotionally, like really explained to you all the benefits that you get if you decide to book this hostel from the view of some a reviewer that visited it. And uh, like marketing 101, right? You should always think from the perspective of the customer and explain all the benefits and not, not in terms of features, not like it can do this and that, but it can do this for you. Like, And the other version was very dry and very factual. So it was only like the one would be like the room is very spacious, very nice and, and more like that. And the actual one was more like the room is exactly 14 square meters large. <laughs> so not really a direct benefit to the customer, right? You, you still have to think like, okay, how large is this? Would that be suitable for me? So these are the two things I tested. And then the alpha dimension was even more interesting because that's really something that's very difficult to do in a real-life setting. When you read a review on a site like that, there's always like a small avatar from the reviewer, right? And sometimes it's a small picture or just the name or sometimes it's even like written by a couple or something like that. So I also varied that. So in the beginning of the session, when I questioned the participants, I asked some very basic information like how old they are, their gender and so on, like stuff that you always have to answer in every survey, right? Later, when they read this review, I had one group where the, the simulated reviewer or the author of the review was very similar to them in those aspects. So, so for example, the reviewer was also a student when these, it just so happens that like if you, the participant was a male participant, it was also a male participant. And so very similar, but very small. It was just a, just a hint basically about the author and the other group had a very different offices, like a retiree and had the opposite gender and so on. <laughs> but no picture because I wanted to tell them it should be very neutral and so on. But I still gave them that hint. So this also had a very pronounced impact on the result. So I measured the intention to book this hotel and also how, how likely they were to recommend it. So I was able to perfectly separate these groups from each other. And the finding was that you have to have either one. So the Surprisingly to me, the, the factual contents were uh, more helpful, were rated as a better review. So even really? though it's not such a direct benefit to the potential customer, but whatever, that was rated as more, more helpful. And also they were more likely to book this when this was a very similar reviewer, which is maybe not so surprising. But what I found interesting is that you had, the, or the review had to have Either one, so either it had to be the very factual dry one, or it had to be the very similar reviewer. But both of these things together didn't increase it significantly more. So your intention. Really? So either one was that was that study. That's so interesting. Yeah, that is really and unexpected. I love when when data shows you unexpected things. That's really great. I think that type of analysis is extremely useful for so many businesses. I think obviously like a big part in research and I think in data science is the setting up of experiments as you had to do for your PhD and, and I'm sure a lot since, if not before as well. How do you go about setting up good experiments? Yeah, so in research, you pretty much have the freedom to do anything you like. You just have to see it through and be very careful about it. So there's a lot of methodological aspects of it, but it really helped me also later on in, in a business setting to avoid the pitfall, like to, because when you have a bunch of data, a bunch of observations, it's very easy to just separate them into two groups and measure the average of both and compare that. But there are always cases where this doesn't really make sense or you have to pay attention to some other details so and going like going through that process all on my own from beginning to end really helped me to be very clear or be, become more routine in setting this up and, and knowing what to look for yeah and how do you do that setup of experiments in business now or since then i think in business when you work in marketing you also do it this way like when you want to know something very specific you can also set up your experiments if there's a budget for that. And then you just go through it like in the same way as you would in a research setting. 
But if you do something else, like me, like in a, in a consulting business for a large corporation, for example, or in a startup where you already have a lot of data, then it still happens that you and your team ask a lot of questions about it. And you know that it's somewhere in the data, like you can answer these questions using the data that you have, but you still have to be very careful and model it in a specific way. Like you still have to know exactly how to select, for example, the, the observations randomly into groups, for example, or like all the biases that you can introduce doing that, or you have to correct for the amount of observations when you compare means and all these things. That's really good. No, I think it's it's super important to follow that. And then after your PhD, you started working as a data scientist, right? What was yeah. that like? It was a lot of fun. Like it was a very special setting. I think I worked for a large German corporation who is who is uh, not producing steel but dealing with it. Like they they buy it in large quantities from steel producers and cut it up and uh, paint it and saw it and do all different uh, services for their clients, then they sell it in exactly the same in the way the client needs it, like for example, for extraction, uh, construction of uh, buildings or machinery, automobile parts, whatever. And uh, they also had uh, the vision to found this startup within a corporation and really use the data and to like, digitalize the whole company and uh, create new business models from it. And I thought that was very exciting. So I joined this endeavor and moved to Berlin. And it was a lot of fun, like, because we started basically from scratch, like they had their legacy systems containing all their data from clients and all their revenue and materials. And I was able to analyze a lot of different things, like how many of these 200,000 different products do you need to, for example, make 80% of your revenue? And it turns out they need only a very small fraction of <laughs> And all these I things, so I found very exciting. I had the opportunity to work on a pricing model, for example, because if you have 200,000 different products that you want to sell, it's very difficult to uh, maintain prices all of the time for all of these products. And especially in steel, the price fluctuates a lot. Like for different groups of raw material, you have different prices that go up and down all the time, depending on uh, what the very few uh, producers output and what you can buy. Yeah, it's very dependent on the supply of the steel producers. And that's why it's a very important thing, especially if you're in the trade business of steel. You always have to know what you bought the material for and what you have to sell it for at least, or whether it's a good time to go down with the prices or move them up. So yeah, I work on an automated pricing approach for that. That's great because literally just on the weekend, I was having a chat with a, with a friend who is in the, in the analytics space, but has been focusing mostly on things like financial crime, for example. And I was having a chat to him about the vast array of types of analysis that can be done or the breadth of where analytics can be applied. And we did discuss some areas closer to primary industries like mining or steel manufacturing and refinement. And yeah, they didn't know what type of analysis even could be done in companies yeah. like these. That's really interesting to hear some examples. Were there any other applications of analytics that were unexpected uh, for you that you thought that maybe, you know, coming from marketing, maybe this type of analysis wouldn't be applicable in steel, but then it gave you good results? Not really. I always try to be agnostic about that and I don't think in silos. So I always say like, it's just data and <laughs> some data looks like this and that to me, then some type of analysis is in order. So that's, that's always, then also we, of course, we did the usual building reporting systems and defining KPIs as well, because it's always very important for the business to know what's going on and it's in an efficient way, like to move away from Huge amounts of Excel files being sent all over the place. That's usually not a good sign. <laughs> That's exactly right. And how did you find that transition from after your PhD going from research, in your case, back into the business world? But how was the transition for you? It was a lot of fun, actually, because I never really planned on staying in education for such a long time. So I always wanted to go back into a company and make an impact with what I learned. So yeah, I was really looking forward to it and it was a lot of fun. The team was growing. We installed all these systems. We built all these metrics. We churned out analysis <laughs> day after day. So 
so yeah, uh, it was really fun. That's great. And the startup where you are now, is this the startup that is owned or that was started by the steel company or is it a different one? In a different one, it's in the fitness space. So again, very different area. <laughs> but I really enjoyed this. Like this is again closer to the social sciences where I did my PhD because it's so yes, we produce a fitness app. It's called Yes. You can find it on the app store and it tracks a lot of different things. Like it's a lot of fun when you have wearable that you enjoy because it not only tracks, uh, for example, the steps that you take, but it also turns it into yes points that you can use for rewards. So you get some benefits from being active, which is a good thing for everybody. So I was very excited about this concept. In the end, we're trying to build healthy habits. That's like our mantra. So when you use the, the app regularly and you exercise a lot and you don't just sit around in the office all day, but you go out and uh, you move a lot, it's very healthy for you. And that's one, what we want to uh, promote and encourage and also reward. So the type of analysis that I do are now more, how can I model consistency and engage people so that they not buy more products, but become healthier in a very consistent, sustainable way. So I think that's on the one side, it's a very noble goal to have as a company. And on the other hand, it's closer to the studies that I also did in my time as a researcher. It's always about changing habits and modeling people's behavior analyzing revenues, for example. Correct. And in this case, you're nudging people towards a healthier lifestyle and getting them addicted to exercise. Exactly. That's what we do. That must be really interesting. And how has the company or your role, how has it changed since you started here at the startup at Yes? It changed a lot because I started with the responsibility of building uh, reports and introducing a reporting system and also develop the product into a way that it becomes more individualized and more, more intelligent in a way so that we can give people a better experience that nudges them even better so uh, to motivate them even more to stay healthy. And the role remains, but also I acquired some new responsibilities. Like for example, this year we had this general data protection regulation coming up in the entire European Union. And so since my start here in January, I've been always working towards becoming compliant and with a lot of documentation and introduction of safe processes. And uh, this was very new for me, but it was also a lot of fun to, to learn all these things and making all of our data processes compliant and in the same way, but at the same time, still be able to uh, do um, analysis and generate insights because that's uh, what we do and what our users benefit from. So yeah, doing both at the same time is a lot of fun. And then also we have a lot of technical questions coming up with our app and um, I have been involved with that uh, more and more on like both sides like one or more technical questions like what is a good platform to move our app to in terms of development and uh, how can we best organize our app development processes and on the other hand also like more content focused like how can we make our app more intelligent what are good models or good uh, techniques to make everything more relevant to the user. So exciting. Obviously, you have your work cut out for you. I mean, there's so much that can be done there, and it's so exciting. I'm sure you're having a blast. Absolutely. It's a lot of fun. Also, we're like, what I really enjoy about it is that the team really lives this healthy spirit. Like, they have yoga classes in the office, and we always eat very healthy food, and there's <laughs> always some uh, vegan protein powder in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. I love it. I love it. So now I want to change tact a little bit, change pace and ask you some, I guess, some higher level questions and, and big picture questions about the field. And I wanted to start with your thoughts on what do you think makes a great data scientist? Yeah, I can only speak from my experience. And for me, it always helped me that I had experience with many different tools because on all the uh, projects and consulting or research or university, I always had to get acquainted with some new technology or tool or language. And I never rejected it. I always embraced that. And it always paid out in the end. So like for my uh, final thesis in university, I had to learn, what was it again? SAS? 
like the, the statistics software, which is very common in large corporations. And then university, when I was doing research, I used Starter a lot, also a great statistics program. And when nowadays I, I mostly use R for everything, which I always like. So yeah, many different tools, but also like technical uh, things like SQL servers, which are like very basic, and then all the different reporting systems that are out there, which also make life a lot easier. Then you have to know about data structures, data processes, and all these things. So yeah, I always got in, in contact with new technologies wherever I went, whenever the project took me. And uh, yeah, I was embraced it and, and it paid out. That's what I would say. That's what helped me. Like, I, I cannot say what it would be like if I had focused on one language. Like, uh, for example, if I had learned Python early on and only worked with that, how that would have been. I have no idea. Maybe that's also great. Yeah, no, true, true. That's good. And what do you think makes a great data science leader, either a team leader or a manager or an executive? What makes a really good data science leader? In my opinion, uh, it's understanding that it's always a journey. Like there's always new things coming up, new, like, even in statistics, new models are being developed, new machine learning algorithms are coming up, new technologies mature all the time like every year at least there's something new a new trend that's really worth looking at really worth investigating and at the same time new data scientists are being educated and still need to be taken onto that journey and like start at the beginning learn about the basics and then gradually look into new technologies and um, teach them to go in, in a position where they can use that stuff and really make an impact so i think uh, that's that's maybe the most important thing. Like if a, if a data science leader sees the big picture, this comes back to what we talked about, uh, <laughs> the value that's being created. And if someone sees that and enables people to make that impact and create this value for a company, then I think that's a great leader. That's great. I really like that. What do you think are the, the current challenges in data science? For me, it's navigating all these technical questions because even today you have all these cloud technologies. Everything's like basically you swipe a credit card and you can use something, some server, some system, but you still have to apply it to your specific setting. And that's like the most challenge. Like, yes, everybody can uh, fire up an, an instance of a server on Amazon, AWS, for example, but uh, to really use it in a way that's valuable to you or the company, that's always challenge and that's where you have to take people to be able to make those decisions what to use which tool is the right one and does it scale is it efficient for the company does it bring value and if the answer is yes and it's the right tool yeah so but apply those technologies and at the same time help people grow in a way that they can make these decisions on their own that's a challenge but an exciting one yeah. exactly 100 percent yeah being able to contextualize the field to the specific applications and help people make those better decisions. Awesome. And what do you see as the future challenges in the industry? What do you think the challenges coming up? It's hard to say. Like because there's so much going on right now, maybe it's um, standardizing some of these processes. Because I think it, it doesn't help anyone if things just keep expanding and new technologies are on the market, which is a good thing. But also I think um, it would everyone in the area would benefit if there's standardized processes to do some things like for analysis or some architectural questions and also data science curriculum maybe because there's different uh, versions of the data science like no one can do everything and then sometimes that leads to disappointment so i think it would be helpful to label that right and do you think that the the variety in data science, the variety of tools and approaches and architectures and everything. Why do you think that's the case? Do you think that that's because data comes in all shapes and sizes? Or do you think that's because of the systems that create the data, how they're architected? Where do you think that the variety in data science comes from? I think a lot of the stuff just um, kind of grows in, in companies. So you like for every business case you always have a have a system 
especially in large corporations that's being developed and that can do this one thing, then it evolves into something different and then yes, it's being spun off. But then someone says like, that's a good idea, but uh, we can do it differently and more efficiently and then they develop something on their own. So I think that that happens a lot. And to a larger extent, that's good because we have great ideas and uh, great products come out of it. Yeah, but also um, people and companies still need to be able to navigate that. So I think that's going to be the challenge. Yeah. Definitely. Another thing I wanted to ask you was about the imposter syndrome in data science. So sometimes data science, especially data scientists, understand that data science is such a huge field that there is no one person that can know everything. And a lot of people feel bad for that. They feel like they're not good enough or, you know, they, they feel like they're an imposter and they're insecure uh, sometimes. What do you think about the imposter syndrome? Do you think that it's, is it real? Is it fair? And how do you see it i thought the opposite was the case that's what i what i read about in, in the blog i think people say they are data scientists but then actually they lack this and that competencies and <laughs> <laughs> so both can happen although i think it's mostly managing expectations like when you know what you want to build as a team or you want to do something as a company and you know exactly what you're looking for and what this person has to be capable of, then I think it's not too much to ask to uh, write this down and then uh, you can talk about it with, with anyone, with any data scientist. And then you just see whether that's a good fit or not. There's no one data scientist that fits all. Absolutely. But you shouldn't be uh, worried about it. It's, it's also a good thing. That's right. That's good. And talking about teams, as you mentioned, how do you make a data science team very effective? What are some of the, the ways that you do it? I try to expose the members to new technologies a lot because that's what helped me in the past. But also you have to track the progress, like how, how well they're able to use some things. And also everybody has preferences. Someone is more keen on writing SQL queries or structuring a database and do all these from my perspective, more technical things. And someone else like uh, enjoys doing a lot of charts. It's a very, very visual person. And that's fine too. Yeah, so I try to acknowledge and uh, honor those preferences. It just needs to fit together as a team as a whole, right? Not everybody has to do everything as long as it works as a team. So that's fine. Yeah, so I think it's a lot of managing preferences and expectations towards the team and then agree on a common outcome and then everybody can work in the same direction. And do you push people in the team to take on challenges that are outside of their area of comfort or in areas that they usually wouldn't venture into? A little bit, yeah. Absolutely. I think that's uh, my responsibility as a team lead. Absolutely. So uh, because that's the way people grow. So I try to do that a lot. But um, also it's important not to overpace this process because if it's too challenging and there's no way <laughs> and someone doesn't know how to approach the problem in the first place, then that's no good. So uh, I, I always give, give help how to do this or go through examples, of course. Yeah, it has to be manageable. That's great. Uh, yeah, no, really good. What's a, a mistake that you see people doing in this field? Maybe when they're coming into the field or once they've been in the field for a few years, what is something that you would like to tell people that is wrong or that they shouldn't do? Do you see that is something that you see as a mistake that could hurt their careers? I think uh, one major thing is like focusing on one tool or very few tools like early on, because of course you have to reach a certain proficiency to be able to um, use something. But um, like if you only know a, a very limited set of tools and you're always going to use that, even if it's not the best or the most efficient tool for the task at hand, um, especially later. So I would say learn the fundamentals, also some theory or statistical models, for example, programming language concepts, that always helps. But the more you focus on, let's say, theoretical aspects, like basics in that way, the more you're also flexible and free to use new stuff coming in the future that uh, you haven't even heard of today. Correct. Yeah, that's really good. And I only have one more question for you. I wanted to ask you about a, a takeaway or a piece of advice. Obviously, this is related to the previous question, but uh, what would be a piece of advice or a, a takeaway that you would like the listeners to be thinking about after the interview and as they go through their careers, something to keep in mind for them? 
Yeah, well, I would stay with that theme and like learn the like if you really want to become a data scientist and you're or you're early in this field, I think it's a great field to be in. But um, I see a lot of people coming into it for the money, so I would uh, just my advice would be to don't do that, like because if you're only in it for the money, then uh, you won't stick with it for a long time, and that's when it really starts to become fun. So, I would say learn the fundamentals in the beginning, be flexible about the tools, learn new stuff along the way. It's going to be a big part of the job anyway. And if you're okay with that, then you're going to do great. That is awesome. Thank you so much. That was really mm -hmm. great. Super valuable, really interesting. And I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much for doing the interview. I really appreciate it. Sure thing. Sure thing. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Felipe. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y, so F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.